Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Our guest today is Greg Rose. Greg has worked closely with Richard Branson at Virgin for nearly 15 years. As Virgin's content and communications director, he is responsible for what you see from Richard or Virgin's companies across social media, Richard's autobiographies, and more traditional public outlets. He's the man who convinced Virgin's famous founder to take social media seriously in the early days, and he's built Virgin's digital image in sync with Richard's philosophy and outlook ever since. Matt and I discussed all aspects of that process with him, and we unearthed what he's learned about managing a huge personal as well as a corporate brand. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Greg Rose. All right, Greg, excited to have you here. And I think we're going to spend most of the conversation talking about your career at Virgin, working closely with Richard, everything that goes into being the content operator for a brand. But I think it's helpful to actually start with your backstory and sketch out a little bit about the path that took you to Virgin in the first place. So can you share some of the backstory on yourself? Thanks for having me. Yeah. So when I was growing up, I wanted to be a footballer and I actually did that professionally. And then when that came to an end, I realized I wanted to stay in sport, but was more interested in writing about it than playing it. Or maybe I was slightly better at writing about it than playing it. So I studied sport journalism. And as that went on, I got more and more into news and more and more into music. And then by the time I graduated, I ended up working at a news agency by day, which was pretty soul destroying, writing stories about caravans and house prices and whatnot. But it meant that I learned how to write very quickly, very succinctly, and work out where the story is, what people wanted to know, what information worked in what order. So that was a really good education. And at the same time, I was leading this double life where I was a music writer and going to a gig every night, interviewing bands, covering festivals. And I was trying to reduce down the news writing and increase the music writing. And then I met this guy called Bob Fear, one of the greatest names there's ever been. And Bob ran Digital for Virgin, at that point, Virgin's digital presence was pretty limited. We had Virgin.com as a central hub for the brand, but it was basically links off to the different companies. So it was where you'd find the button to book a flight and they would take you off to Virgin Atlantic or you'd find the link to top up your mobile if you're in the UK, that type of thing. But there wasn't really any content there. And I pitched to start a music blog off the side of it as a reason to get people going there and engaging with Virgin's music heritage. So they let me do that as a freelance thing as I was doing that, I was just seeing all the things that was happening across the Virgin world that weren't really getting talked about other than by the media. We should do this ourselves and suggested that we should basically create a content proposition on the site and then have social media as the way to talk about that. And this was back in 2008, 2009, when that was pretty nascent for brands to be doing that. 
I joined on a three-month contract, then got extended another three months, three more times. So it took me up to a year. And by that point, they were like, okay, there might be some legs in this and give me an actual job. And then I'm still here, but I've been through probably a good 10 jobs in that time as what's been needed has changed. And the key point in that development was me pitching that Richard should have a presence in that world and should have social media and convincing him to do so. And if I think about Virgin now, Richard seems the central figurehead, but to me, it's always felt like he has always been that way. But describe what it was like at the time when you first pitched that he should be more of a presence and the brand Virgin and Richard the brand should be more intertwined. Yeah, I guess it's worth talking about the model of Virgin at that point. So I guess the people have this interesting setup that's not really quite like anything else, which is why we struggle with the comparison sometimes. But people have a vision of it's all the Virgin companies are in one big Virgin house and Richard's in the room at the top of it, directing operations. And it's not really like that. But actually, from the public perspective, it's sometimes useful for it to appear that way. So it's really trying to get the balance between the reality and then what is helpful. But yeah, at that point, we were a much smaller group, but we were also going in a lot more different directions. And at this point, we're a bit more consolidated and have a lot more structure. Richard's role is very much founder. At that point, I think he was very involved in individual companies, but at this point, he's very much the founder and takes an overseeing perspective over the group. And that plays into his strengths of focusing on the big picture, but also giving him the time to, when there's a crisis in one particular area, or there's something that he really thinks that he can add value, then he'll dive in and be really focused on that particular company for a while. But the setup of the companies is very much, they're all individual businesses that have their own management systems, have their own structures, but then they all share the Virgin brand and are part of the Virgin family. And we make sure as a central team that the standards that we want in terms of brand quality and customer service and product and everything else are adhered to. But we try and work collaboratively with those companies. And yeah, that's probably one of the most fun parts of my job is I get to work with all these brilliant people in really interesting companies in completely different sectors and try and help them out as much as we can. Virgin has this association with fun and free playing and adventurous similar to Richard. When you work with some of those individual business units, do they all jive with that? Is that part of their DNA as well? I'm just curious, with something like what you're trying to do related to content, you need that to be in the DNA of content. But does that always come through? What's been your experience with that? Yeah, exactly. That's very much Richard's vision. It's all about people and it's about trying to hire people that chime with that general feel of the brand, whether they're working in the record company or the bank and everything in between, obviously a much more diverse business than it used to be. And that's a real positive. But yeah, there's definitely a red thread. We like to talk about it coming through the companies and making sure that people understand the history of the brand and the values of it and try and adhere to that, but also keep moving it in new directions as they're working on whatever it is they're working on. And you're obviously going to have people with really different expertise if they're in health clubs or space companies. But yeah, you like to think that people could move pretty seamlessly between the companies in terms of the spirit of it. And if you go back to the late 2000s, it's hard to imagine, but social media really wasn't the same presence that it is today, or it was the early innings and much more of a consumer-related product than it was a brand product. So what was it like trying to convince the business to lean into social media? And how did you actually do it? Is there a good backstory to this in terms of how you convinced Richard or Virgin as a whole to actually start to lean into social media? It was pretty tricky in terms of getting budget and building a team. So it was just me for a long time. And then I was able to get one other person, Jackie, really helped. But I think 
in terms of giving it a go, it was pretty amazing how much leeway I got to just try things. As I mentioned, Bob, but then our brand director at the time was very open to it. And then the press officer at the time had been there with Richard on a lot of crazy adventures, and she was really open to trying to do this digitally as well. And I would say that they had probably a quite good understanding of what they didn't know and were willing to delegate, which is very much Richard's philosophy as well. He's like, okay, that sounds good. Let's try it. And then if it didn't work, then we'd try something else. But in terms of that moment with Richard, yeah, I can remember it really clearly. So as I joined, he had joined Twitter and sent one tweet, which he did a boating challenge across the Atlantic, trying to be the fastest to sail across the Atlantic, and then sent a tweet from the boat. And then it sat there and it was waiting for what are these big moments when we can then use it? Whereas my view was that we should just be posting pretty much every day about what he's doing and using it more in the way that people were starting to use Twitter as a conversational tool. And then, yeah, so I pitched that to my bosses and then they just said, well, ask him. And he was and is still that accessible as I could just ring him and explain who I was and that I wanted to ask some questions and create some content off that. And he didn't quite understand what it was for. He understood that I worked in the brand team. So he thought that it was going to be then for a newspaper. And I tried to explain, we don't need a newspaper. This is going to be just for you and for your channels. And then he was like, so I could just speak directly to people. I don't have to go through anyone else. I was like, no. And he was like, well, I suppose I have to go through you. I was like, yes, exactly. And that's pretty much been the model ever since. So in that period, we'd call up or would email through questions in different areas as I was learning through the history of things that I thought was interesting that we could resurface as well as what was happening in the group that day and what he was doing that week etc and yeah he's just really open to it and understood the value of it I think he that his first success was starting a magazine for students he wanted to be a journalist and an editor I loved going back to the student magazines and reading Richard interviewing Mick Jagger and failing to get the recorder to work and interviewing James Baldwin by like sneaking into his hotel room and like these incredible journalistic stories when he was 15 16 and so he really gets the value of that from a journalistic perspective and then I think he innately understands the value of speaking directly to people without a mediator or without the media as that prison to go through when it comes to trying to build a voice for an individual on digital like the, the main thing you need is their actual buy-in not just their understanding that it's useful but their real desire of why it's useful and their desire to actually do it because if you've got someone who's disengaged and you're trying to create authenticity everyone can tell was there a way that you were measuring success in that category i think early on days of social media it was much trickier but how were you measuring whether it was a successful project and endeavor the biggest thing was just follower growth so Rich likes to know how things are doing. And we used to report pretty regularly on how things were growing. At that point, it was Twitter and Facebook as the two things. And then LinkedIn followed. I remember that one really, really clearly because I was on the bus and Dan Roth, who's still the editor at LinkedIn, rang me and it was late at night and I couldn't really hear. But I was like, this sounds like a good idea to join LinkedIn if they opened, started an influencer program and we helped them launch that and getting in there first has been really helpful. I think we're number one user on LinkedIn for a long time. So we're number two now. So yeah, it was definitely like finding those opportunities as they come. And were you emailing him every day or ringing him every day to say you should probably tweet about what you're doing today or finding out what he was up to and then tweeting? What were the actual mechanics of those early days? Yeah, but that very quickly went to the other way around. of him letting me know that he wanted to share something. He very much understood the value of it. And then as the numbers started going up, was really excited by that and wanted to do more of it and then got more engaged. And he's 
incredible life balance. He embodies that work hard, play hard, but he really values this world and finds the time. So ever since day one, there's never been anything that's gone up that he doesn't see and approve at the very least. But in nearly all situations, he's adding to it. He's editing it. He's making changes. And yeah, in those early days, he was very keen to be doing the button pressing as well. So he was on Twitter on his phone and that led to a few mishaps. He's very open about his dyslexia and it certainly came through in a lot of those times. But we help out on the actual posting, but he is very engaged in terms of the content of what's going out. That's one where one story to share that I think sums that up was we had a customer service issue and Richard was very much seeing the value of people coming directly to him on Twitter with customer service issues. And then now we have a pretty robust system of when people do that, that we very quickly are redirecting them to the particular company because if somebody comes to him directly with a complaint or an issue, we need to make sure that it gets to our bank or our media company or whatever it is or the airline pretty quickly. But at that point, Richard's wanting to reply to these people directly and he would, if he'd see them, he'd send them on to me. And one time he did mix up that process a bit and just reply to somebody who had an issue with internet connection being down. He just replied to them with the word Greg, which confused them an awful lot more than helped, I imagine. But then they probably quite appreciated that Richard was passing me in there, trying to pass it on to me to sort it out. And obviously we resolved the issue pretty quickly. There's authenticity, which seems to continue to be in the DNA of the posting and whatnot. But you mentioned there is a process. How do you find that balance between we want to make sure that there's some type of system here where we don't go completely off the rails, but at the same time, if you start to sterilize it too much, it just becomes worthless. Do you have a certain philosophy about going about that? Yeah, very much so. It's strategy versus opportunity. And I think we have a pretty solid strategy of how we're going to use all the different channels, how we use Richard's voice, how we use his daughter Holly's voice, how we use the different company voices and the brand. But then we are very happy to slide from that when the right opportunity comes up. So we try not to be rigid and be like, no, this is what we were planning to do today. So that's what we're going to do. It's actually if something else comes in, if Richard wants to go in a completely different direction, then we are very happy to pivot and change method. And I think it's great to have a structure and a process in place so everyone knows the plan. But then if you just stick to that, it can get quite staid. So we're very much open to making changes at the last minute. And if I were to start working for you today, would you literally have, here are the voices of the different companies and Rich's voice and Holly's voice, and here's how we think about each of those sub-accounts? We have pretty lengthy brand guidelines, which then have got a separate tone of voice section um, that talks about the tone of voice for the brand. For the individuals, less, it's more about time and spending time with them and with us work with them for a long time and get that. I don't think that's something that we could have in a document that you could read and then immediately understand. And it's the same for the brand channels, but I think for the brand channels, there's more flexibility because you can be yourself as the brand, whereas when you're working with an individual, it's their voice. And there are a million examples of brand accounts with huge followings, but very, very little engagement. So I'd love just to hear you riff about everything you've learned about the differences between brand and personal accounts and how to best get engagement or excitement around them, or even if maybe that's not the goal there. And what would you recommend other people try and do with brand accounts that might not have the same personality behind them? It's definitely the focus should be on engagement. And I think that it really depends on what the company is. So I'm lucky to have experience of this with different companies at different life stages. So company I'd work with the longest would be Virgin Atlantic, our airline, 
I've been amazed in this space since I've started, but I've gone through lots of different iterations of their approach. And then you go through to our newest companies that are starting from scratch and they have the brand, but they're in completely different fields. And the approach, if you're a company that's already got millions of customers is really different than if you're a startup that's trying to get them. So yeah, it really depends on the life stage of your company. And then I think that the first thing is what are your objectives? What do you actually want to get out of this? And it shouldn't just be, we feel like we're supposed to be on here. So let's get on here. Best current example of that is TikTok. Some of our companies are on TikTok and it's working great, but lots of other companies are not yet and they need the right reason why they should be, need the right resourcing and what's the objective to get out of that. If it's just, oh, others are, so we should, then that probably isn't going to work. So are you trying to get signups? Are you trying to get people to understand what the brand is and the business proposition? Are you trying to get engagement? Yeah, don't go in blind. Make sure that you know what it is that you're trying to achieve. For us, for the Virgin Master Brand, it's pretty interesting because we're not necessarily trying to sell people a product. We're very much trying to get people to understand what the brand is all about and then to highlight the best of it. So that's a really different approach than what's also run by my team, Virgin Red. So that's one of our newer companies that is a group ride reward scheme. And that is really interesting to work on because that does have obviously a lot more of a direct business angle of trying to get people to sign up and join the reward scheme. But the way we do that is by talking about the rewards that they can get by them understanding what the Virgin companies are up to. So they cross over really well, but have to have quite a different tone of voice because there's very different goals for each of them. So that's really interesting, especially as we have lots of people working across both of them and they have to adapt their approach depending on which they're working on. And what's the juggle like between talking in your brand's voice and adapting or playing to the algorithm that exists on the platform that you're trying to grow, for example, Twitter or You see examples of people who aren't necessarily being themselves, but they're doing what works on the platform. And you see some other examples that seem to be able to balance the two very well. And I'm not quite sure exactly how they do that. But how have you thought about that as you grow the various accounts that you look after? That's the biggest challenge. I think it's very much trial and error. So you shouldn't think that we shouldn't jump on this trend because it isn't us without seeing, could it be us? We should very much be open to trying things. But yeah, that is where our guidelines do come in handy. So you can see if something is very much not a space that we should be playing in. But yeah, I very much try and not shut people down when they've got good ideas and want to try things. But it is really tough walking that line. Yeah, because you'd want to not have the brand voice as a concrete thing that can't move and evolve. And as you said earlier about having different voices, different people of different ages and experiences coming into the group, you need to listen to them and their experience and very conscious that I've been here for a while and I think that the worst possible thing would be for me to say oh actually we tried this four years ago and it didn't work so therefore we shouldn't go into that space again and try and give people the breathing space to try their own things and the freedom to freedom to fail yeah that's definitely an area where Richard's really useful because he has always done that and very much embraces our failures and celebrates when things go well but really moves on so quickly when they don't and we try and have the same approach are there other brands that you admire from specifically this using the brand with a social strategy to get the best business outcome? I think that Disney, that's one of the closest ones that we have in terms of how they've been able to get their different brands to interact and how they are able to showcase the whole breadth of the business. This classic example is how they've used Twitter to have their different propositions interact in a natural way that's obviously extremely planned out, but then can build its own life from there. And Yeah, we very much try and do a bit of that around the group as well. But the favorite times are when the different companies end up interacting 
in a way that wasn't planned just because different people in the group see something fun and jump in on it. But yeah, I don't think that there's anyone necessarily in our space that we'd jump to and be like, let's try and do that. I think that there's some classic examples in the UK that end up getting shared around our group a lot, like Innocent, that have managed to maintain a really specific tone of voice that still feels fresh and people follow them because they find them entertaining and interesting above and beyond the product that they're selling. So we try and have a bit of that. We have an interesting one in the UK as well. We used to have a Virgin Trains company and that ended a few years ago and we now have a Virgin Trains ticketed company. So completely different proposition. We're not running the trains, but you can use our app to book trains on any route and us trying to work out how to use what was great about the train company's tone and turn that into a completely different company, but where people have got expectations of how it's going to sound because they were quite cheeky and quite funny, quite wry, very English humor, and then turning that into something that's got to be to do with organizing tickets. That's an interesting challenge at the moment. And I think that as brands change what they're doing, they have to try and change their tone of voice as well. And yeah, just see what people connect with. It might be an interesting case study of how, as these businesses arrive at your doorstep, the process you go through to work out what this brand should sound like to the consumer. I guess in that case, you had an existing business that was in the similar field and how you're crossing it over. Have you got other examples where the group has acquired a new business that is different for everyone? And you're like, I'm just trying to think through how this is that red thread you talked about and the ways in which we can maximize that, but also have a unique voice for this particular business. Yeah, I think the example that comes to mind is Virgin Voyages. So it's a bit more context on my job. I was in the UK for a long time and then I moved to the US about four and a half years ago. And I'm sitting in a New York office here where it was a really interesting time to come across because we had lots of companies that were going from startup stage to getting to market. So Virgin Voyages, our cruise line, and then Virgin Hotels had one hotel at that point and now they're spreading across the US and elsewhere. Virgin Atlantic had partnered with Delta and was having a lot more focus on the US markets. And then big focus on our space companies with Virgin Orbit Time and then Virgin Galactic, which at that point was still going through the testing program. So yeah, that was a big part of wanting to come over here and work really closely with those companies as they did develop those voices from scratch. But I think that the ones who did it really well and continue to do it really well, ones that took the best from the heritage and from what the other companies were doing that they could lean into, but also had their own completely different spin on it. So Virgin Voyage is probably the best example because it's a cruise line, which is an industry that we probably never thought about being in. And Richard would openly say he just never thought that he'd be a person who would go on a cruise, but then was like, well, what if we removed all the things that people hate about cruises and just kept all the people, things people love and reinvented? So hence voyages, not cruises. And the big differentiator is there's no kids on the ships at all. So it's very much an adult experience and then focus on fine dining and high quality entertainment that's not the typical cruise fodder. So yeah, for the digital team, for the social team, they have to try and show that experience and really try and partner with interesting people, whether it's influencers at the top end with JLo, but also partnering with people like House of Yes here in New York to do the activations and trying to just showcase how this brand is different and why you should go on it versus the other cruise lines. But at the same time, balance that so that you're not putting off people who do love those other cruise lines and maybe don't want a completely different experience. So yeah, that's probably one of the more interesting ones. And I think it is that balance. We're still learning as we go, but one of the big learnings there has been using the people that are on it. So they've got the best reviews on TripAdvisor. So it's how do we get more content out of the people who are on the ship that really love it and getting that authentic personal 
viewpoint from sailors versus obviously it's great having JLo as a ambassador as well but you want to thread the line between those two different ends of that scale how important have those brand collaborations and activations become for just brands in general and also virgin specifically you've always had richard which is your core collaborator across all this stuff but then finding other people for each business that's evolved massively over the last decade and social media in general and the rise of influencers how much of that features in the strategy today yeah it has and it's really changed it used to be a lot more ad hoc and organic and then now there's a lot more structured influencer programs that lots of brands use and i think that they can be really effective but it's the same as i was saying before in terms of trial and error but also in understanding what your brand is and what's going to work for it so it's finding the sweet spots and people that are actually going to already speaking to your customers or in the right market that they're going to get your new customers so somebody that's got a million followers isn't necessarily as useful as somebody who's got twenty thousand followers if they're the right twenty thousand. so it's really finding those niches and yeah i think that it comes down to that same thing of personal connections i think the best influences that we have are obviously our people just the employees that we have that share the great stuff happened in their companies without having to be asked that's better than any influences you could pay but there's still a space for finding influencers who are using the products because they like them and because they enjoy the version atlantic flying experience or are staying in our hotels anyway and then work with them to try and showcase that in the best way and I have to ask, with all the hospitality businesses, the travel businesses, they are notoriously, for lack of a better term, dumpster fire sometimes with social media and the mentions that many of your airline counterparts face. What does that feel like on the inside if you ever do have issues where it's blowing up social media? What goes on in the inside of your business in terms of responding or not responding to that type of activity? We're not immune to that and we very much try and minimize it and deal with them as well as we can but yeah that's just a natural thing that happens especially in areas like telecom it's going to happen sadly it's just a part of the online world and it's about having a really clear system in place of how to deal with it and making sure that issues get solved as fast as they can and that your people are looked after while they're looking after people in a practical sense as a central group we have a tool that does pick up everything and then redirect it to the different companies to deal with so that's how we resolve that what was an early problem of people pointing out issues directly to Richard and it being overwhelming for us to try and deal with them because we wouldn't know necessarily what the next flight to get somebody on was or how quickly an engineer could come out and fix broadband or so it was very much getting a system in place with those companies that they can then go in and use their expertise. Yeah, it's one of those problems that comes with the cost of doing social media. It is rather unfortunate, but it's the reality of the world. Going back to Richard, if we think about everyone talking about the creator world today and people that turn a lot of content into just a broader business built around them, he might be one of the original examples of this and not to take away from all of his business process and everything that he was doing at university, which I think is detailed really well. But when you think about that current trend that's going on in the market now, and you compare it to something like what Richard has built, do you think that his path is something that can be recreated or a lot of the people that are influencers of today can take some of those lessons and build real businesses around them? Is that something that you think is a true path? I think it is. I think it really depends if that's actually what they want to do. So I think that the funny thing about Richard's celebrity, for want of a better word, is he's always seen it as a means to an end. You know, he's first to say that he's actually a oddly a fairly shy person who doesn't naturally put himself in front of everybody in a room and 
but has very much learned the value of doing so. And then social is just another sphere that he's been able to do that in. So I think that business leader needs to, as I said earlier, they really need to want to do it and understand its use, but also really be happy to make themselves a central part of the brand. Because if you do it because you think it's going to be useful, but you don't really want to, it's probably not going to work. So yeah, Richard's origin story in this area is the airline. So when he was the record label, he was very much behind the scenes a lot more. But then when the airline started, he learned from his mentor, Freddie Laker, who ran an airline that got ran out of business by BA. And he very much mentored Richard and urged him, um, advised him on how to stop the same happening and said, you need to make sure you're on the front pages of the papers and you need to make sure that people are hearing your voice and you need to differentiate in that way. And that was when all of the adventure stuff started coming in and he did the around the world balloon challenges and the boating challenges and just the stunts that made him into a lot more of a mainstream celebrity. But he always saw those as fun things that he wanted to do, but he also, there was always a Virgin logo on the side and he was aware of the value for the brand of doing that. And I think he's still always understood that value of him giving a face to the brand, but he also is like the businesses then need to stand on their own two feet and be solid propositions that there's real depth behind what he is talking about you talked about him becoming and giving him more of a voice in your early days from the outside you've seen polly grow into her role particularly in the public presence how have you thought about or managed not a succession per se but something similar here's how we can interact with holly and her dad and also make sure that holly has more of a presence for virgin and how the virgin brand itself might interact with both of those two so the public at large can get a sense for what's happening internally. It's absolutely something that we thought about, but thankfully it's been really organic because it's been happening anyway. So yeah, so Holly trains as a doctor and then ended up doing some attention and internship around the different Virgin companies to understand more about what the group did. And then she ended up joining the group, worked a lot with Virgin Unite, our foundation, and then now she's our chief purpose and vision officer. So there's a lot of focus on purpose a lot of focus on our people policies and a lot of focus on what the brand is going to be going forward. So that naturally lends itself to thinking about the future and how she picks up different things. So that's been a natural process. And then in terms of her voice on digital, yeah, it's definitely something that she's seen the value of and we've been slowly building up. And a great way to do that is obviously how she crosses over with Richard. And again, we're really lucky because they're really close and see each other a lot and give us loads of opportunities to do things together. So it's been pretty natural. In terms of succession, I don't think Richard would ever retire. I think he's more active now than he ever has been. And it's obviously about finding the balance in terms of things like travel, but in terms of his involvement and engagement, it's, yeah, I don't think there's a date that it would change until he's no longer around. That doesn't surprise me. How much of your job is reactive rather than proactive? You can have a strategy, but a lot of it is just following some of these people around and just reacting to, a, as you said, opportunity earlier. A good bit because there's just, yeah, we have so many companies. So there's usually something breaking that we weren't aware of until it's happening. A key part of that is communications. The way we structure our team is so I'm direct content and communications. So covers PR as well as social and all the breadth in between those things. And I think that lots of businesses that separate those and think, oh, I'm a PR person. I don't know how social works or I'm a creator. I don't have to worry about dealing with corporate comms. We very much see it all as the same thing and we're all in the same team and that is so helpful because then it means that everyone is aware of what issues are going on what issues could potentially arise what are the holes in the road and what are the opportunities so i think that companies that separate those out too much you end up with 
more surprises hitting you that you haven't prepared for because you think, oh, the social team don't need to know about that until it's hit the fan. But actually, we think that they should be just as engaged in it as the people in the corp comms team. So that alignment across the teams is incredibly helpful for making sure that we're not too reactive and we do have good plans in place. But yeah, having said that, we have to be pretty on our toes when something jumps up, we can dive on. Classic example I give is we're Virgin America, a domestic airline in the US. We had this situation on Twitter where Richard had shared about his day and he'd been in several different countries and done some amazing events. He'd been in South Africa and he just had a really particularly great day. I can't remember the details of what he was doing, but somebody tweeted him saying, I'd love to spend a day in your shoes. And then Richard just replied, we'll send shoes. And then we had to work out how to send his shoes to this woman who it turned out was in California. And then we worked out with the different companies. We got Richard's shoes to flow them from South Africa to London on Virgin Atlantic. And then we got them over to here and we got in touch with the woman and ended up having Virgin America deliver them to her door with the caveat that she needed to do something really meaningful in that day. So she ended up volunteering at a homeless shelter for the day and she was a fairly petite woman wearing Richard's size 11 shoes that she strapped on to her much smaller feet and documented it for us and we shared that. And yeah, that wasn't something we thought we'd end up doing that day, but it was a nice example of spontaneity that it's nice to have. Absolutely. And with the PR and maybe some of the proactive and reactive responses, I imagine that's managing a Rolodex with the traditional media and understanding how some of that will work in conjunction with all of your social efforts. Is that done completely separate or is that something that you've had to adopt as well and build over time? It's definitely combined. We have done some people in the team who are more focused on one area than another, but yeah, a crossover with those roles. And I think that's really useful. I think that so often journalists in this day and age are used to finding their stories from social anyway and reporting on what we're saying. And our company's quite press releases, but Richard doesn't quite have press releases. We don't really do that from the group, but everyone would report on how he comments on what something that's happened with a company from his Instagram or wherever else. So that's very much intertwined. But yeah, I think that the way that media roles have evolved journalists change their practices and it's the same on the PR side to how we interact has changed but there's still a huge value in meeting individuals in person and talking through issues in depth and yeah like you can't beat that in person time I was just in a space for America with Virgin Galactic for the space flight last week and there was 50 odd media there in person and there was a old school press conference at the end with Alana the running PR having a panel with the astronauts and people putting their hands up and asking questions and it was amazing the amount of great coverage that came out of that from having a physical, in-person, old-school press conference versus the digital things and assets that were all sent out as usual. Taylor Swift has something to say about in-person experiences too. I think she's proving the value and the desire for people to show up at places. There's a brand question that I wanted to ask. You mentioned before that you really enjoyed the Geico Scoop There It Is commercial, which I'm with you. I also enjoyed that commercial. But when you think about that from a brand perspective, it honestly has nothing to do with insurance. It is just this beautiful, catchy, memorable thing. How do you think about that as a brand man yourself in terms of the value of that type of advertising? I think that instantly made us all smile. And then that should probably be a baseline. If that happens, then there's something there. And then try and work out how that can fit with what you're trying to do. 
we've had a few like that. So we do have a creative council that looks across the different creative that's being made around the group and tries to advise, see if we see any risks or opportunities or builds on it. So that one makes me think of a few we've had with Virgin Media, a telecoms company in the UK that's at the moment, whose campaign has had a paragliding goat is the hero of its ads at the moment. And previously it was a bison on a motorcycle riding through the Midwestern landscape. And if you'd ask, how does that fit with broadband and mobiles? It doesn't necessarily jump straight out at you, but then you think about it, it's about freedom and speed and doing things differently. You can work out how it does. But in the first instance, it makes people remember it and it makes people smile and then you can see the worth of it. So another example is the dairy milk gorilla playing Phil Collins in the air tonight. It's a favorite of Richard's Virgin record. And yeah, just genius working out that those two things should go together. You also do some creative work on the side, or maybe it's in conjunction with Virgin, but ghostwriter, you write fiction. Do you find that that makes you better at your day-to-day job? What's the purpose beyond that? Definitely. I think I've always done that and it definitely keeps me sane. I think that it's probably rare in this day and age for someone to be at the same business for the length of time that I've been at Virgin. And one of the big reasons for that is they've given me a huge amount of freedom to do what I want to do as long as it's useful within the day job, but also outside of that as well. And yeah, I've always wrote fiction and I've always been interested in different things that they'll let me take the time to explore. And that's very much the same for everyone who works at the business and you know, really encouraged. Are there any keys to being a great ghostwriter? How do you get to the essence of what someone or something is actually about? I imagine there are a few tactics. The first one is time and making sure that you're going to get it. I think that anyone who gets given a ghostwriting job and they aren't getting the access that they need is just being set up for failure. So you've just got to spend an awful lot of time. So you know, when I'm working with Richard, we just traveled together an awful lot. And that'd be the most useful time moments when you're on a plane or in a car that there's nowhere else to go and you can just keep asking questions and keep digging in and going over the same areas lots of times is also really useful because different things come out of it and yeah I think the other key thing that maybe gets undervalued in ghostwriting is speaking to other sources so it's amazing if you ask 10 people who were involved in the same incident to describe it you get 10 completely different views of what it was and then you can make this collage of those which is where I think ghostwriting becomes most interesting because it isn't necessarily reportage on a fact especially often when you're going back into distant memories, you're very much trying to paint a picture that's accurate, but tells the story in the most interesting way. So yeah, you need to speak to some of those secondary and tertiary sources and not just speak to one person and take that as that's exactly what happened. And then I think the other thing is just the editing process. So you need to be open to criticism and open to feedback from different people and yeah the first version is never going to be as good as the 20th version and yeah you have to be very patient in that process and open to edits yeah i mean working with richard he always has a pen and a notepad so it's the same if we're working on long form things working on books then the red pen will come out and there'll be a handwritten edits so learn to read handwriting is helpful and then yeah be really willing to actually properly collaborate on it I think on both sides I think you've got to make sure the subject really wants to do it and that they trust you and that again is just time and then you've got to be really open to actually listening to them because nobody knows their story as well as they do and hopefully you'll meet somewhere in the middle I like that I read a lot of oral histories and sometimes they can lose me because you're not getting that one single thread but if somebody can tie it together in a thoughtful entertaining creative way that's a good framing that I hadn't heard before. I think oral histories, yeah, like I read the 
Meet Me in the Bathroom, 2000s in indie music one recently. And yeah, the level of detail, if you're committing to using everything that everybody said, it can get quite long and draining. And yeah, so I think that people are open to having some light editing if it makes it more entertaining for sure when it comes to oral history. It's almost like releasing both the condensed collaboration version with the single person involved and then maybe the source material as a combination. I think that would be a nice match. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a truly excellent conversation. Appreciated your insights. I think what Virgin's done from a brand perspective is in a very unique category of its own and that aligns with Richard, but it aligns much more than that. So really appreciate you sharing everything today. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. So, Dom, we were just talking with Greg after that recording, and I mentioned Tubular Bells, one of Virgin and Richard's first musical masterpieces, came out many, many years ago. And that became my focus music for work after I read his book. It's an excellent 40 minutes of just variety of instruments. It's truly a masterpiece. I got the sense that you had never heard this. Is that true? I was nodding. But no, I had no idea what you're talking about. I'm guessing it was just an instrumental, no vocals. That's generally correct. The vocals that are involved are announcing the instruments. And I forget how many instruments he uses, but it is, again, a masterpiece. And if it needs to be rediscovered, it should be. If it needs to be discovered, it's kind of embarrassing that you haven't listened to it, <laughs> given your association with Virgin. But that said, we'll move on from that. He's still playing it in the background. From time to time. I evolve with my focus music, but that one's definitely in the mix. Yeah. You can only listen to the social network movie soundtrack so often before <laughs> you start to go a little bit insane. So yeah, you got to mix it up. And what's the specific connection back to his first book that he just talks about it in there? Or he says, while you're reading this, you really ought to put this soundtrack on. No, it was a big breakthrough for him because he represented Michael Oldfeld, I believe his name is. When it came out and let me tell you a 40 minute song or it's really like 20 minutes for the first part 20 minutes for the second part doesn't really play well for radio so it was a big hurdle to get over to get this done but it sounds like you haven't read the book so maybe you should start there gosh that's he <laughs> coming for me already but no i haven't read the book i'm afraid but i might now actually i would probably want to read the second one first because greg's got his good work all over it yes fair point major takeaways i thought some interesting takeaways for us on brand strategy yeah talk to me well, just in terms of how you run the social media accounts for brands versus for individuals and different strategies for each. And even though it was fairly simple framework, just in terms of engagement versus getting people to do a certain thing, but not just going into it blindly, there's clearly a strategy there. And I think when you consider the Virgin brand at the top telling the story, the individual brands basically driving either customers towards some type of action or just basically marketing, whatever the service is, it spelled it out pretty nicely to me. A hundred percent. And it's no surprise that Rich's accounts at least 10x bigger than the Virgin accounts, but the way in which Greg was discussing the strategy and how they all interplayed together. I think that interplay is really important as well. And he mentioned it and we didn't really drill down too much, but in the way in which particularly when a new company comes into the fold, how you can use your existing weaponry to fortify that new installment and whether that's through Richard or the Virgin accounts or whatever. And at his point of like, Richard can only do so much with these things and he doesn't want to become the voice piece for every new business. He will interact when it's convenient and feels organic to an audience. So yeah, I think all of that stuff, I was thinking the whole way through, often we're a small team or we're using a small business. 
we don't need guidelines for this stuff. And I was thinking it probably would be helpful to sit down and really think through what our voice is, should be, how we would want different podcasts to talk to each other, how they could talk to Patrick or you or other accounts in our ecosystem, how we might even want to use influencers to some extent. It happens organically, all of this stuff. And then every now and again, it'll work in a nice way. And it's like, oh, we should do more of that. But I have to think there's a ton of more strategic thinking that we could do behind all of this stuff. Well, for brand accounts, I think at the very least, if you have a clear guideline that allows anyone, maybe not anyone, but people to step in and take over and run the account, which creates leverage, which is how you grow things. So I think just at the simplest form, that's where it makes sense. Yeah, it's a really good case study as well, because Joanna, who's just recently joined the business, put us in touch with Greg in the first place. And I've been handing some of the responsibilities for our social media strategy over to Joanna. And she would very politely probably call it haphazard in terms of my education of what we do and how we do things around here, particularly as it relates to social media. So she done with some broad guidelines and having come from Greg's tutelage, she probably sees the mess as following me around in this business. We have some process and procedures in place for certain areas of our business. And for others, it's a little bit more Wild West. Let the content speak for itself. That's my justification to myself. And that's what helps me sleep at night. Justification, also a synonym for excuse, but we will <laughs> accept it nonetheless. Yeah, I think hearing how they go about it makes a lot of sense. Having that authentic person at the top who wants to get involved makes a lot of sense. And then just seeing how it's basically got this buy-in, I think is hard to overstate how much effort that takes and how much buy-in it takes because there's not a lot of easy ways to measure it. With the algorithms, it can get very, very messy, but clearly they've adopted it and it very much fits their brand profile. So I think that's awesome. I was thinking the entire time, airlines, I have this experience where I used to try to check Twitter for any news or interesting takeaways on UPS in more of the finance category where I used to be able to do that with energy companies. With UPS, it's just customer complaints. And with airlines, it's usually <laughs> customer complaints. So hearing how they had to deal with that was interesting. But it was just on my mind the entire time we were talking. Yeah, you've lost my baggage. The other thing it reminded me of when he was saying that people would complain to Richard and then he would try and sort the issue or redirect it elsewhere. It's always amusing when you're within a company and the CEO or founder or a very important person will get a personal email from a customer about this thing that is such a tiny piece of the business, but then it becomes the firm's top priority or a certain department to fix this issue because it came directly to the most important person in the organization. And it's always funny seeing the amount of work that's left behind. This is not Colossus related, by the way, but it's just fun. I've seen it before in other businesses and it's amazing how it works. And you think that's just cost our business a lot of money to fix a problem that hundreds of other people are having at the very same time. So that gave me a right smile. The squeaky wheel gets the grease, but the squeaky wheel on the CEO's driver's car definitely gets the grease relative to the caravan that carries everyone else. Yeah. Just speaking from your past experiences. Exactly. 100%. The other thing I think we can't overlook is just how unique Richard is in this story. There are thousands, millions of founders of big businesses all across the world. There aren't too many Richard Bransons or people that have got that authentic, or even his lifestyle. I think people are attracted to the way he lives. Obviously, he bought a wonderful island in tropical paradise many years ago and has done a huge amount of very cool stuff over his career. And so as you think about trying to replicate this with other founders or other people, it is just innately probably harder because they're not Richard Branson. And there is something to his charisma or his story or his willingness to be open and to buy into stuff like this that a ton of other people just wouldn't want to do or wouldn't be comfortable with. And that would present a hurdle. It doesn't mean you can't do it, but it just has to be in a very different form. 
yeah, I agree. We maybe overlooked Richard a little bit throughout the conversation. It's hard to, there's not much to say. It's just, yeah, yeah, completely agree. So yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting, especially hearing from maybe a more established business, how they go about things. I think head of content creation and brand strategy is always one of those titles where it's hard to measure. Everybody knows how important it is, but it can be very hard to measure effectiveness. So just listening to the inside baseball about what they're doing was pretty interesting. Yeah, totally agree. And just some of the nuggets that he shared, the different stories of how things came about. It also made me wonder just whether being playful or cheeky or funny is the dominant strategy across this stuff. What other big, almost like genres you could go with when you're trying to build a particular social media presence or a digital presence and gain followers? I guess the other one I thought of at the time was you could be funny or you could be inspirational. Are there other ones that come to mind easily that actually work? I think funny is the one, and maybe not even funny, but the Wendy's account. It's that cynical sarcasm, which seems to be the common thread behind large brand accounts. But beyond that, I'm not really sure. Yeah, no. Inspirational mind, maybe by sharing photos of places that make people jealous, they often get big followers, maybe not so much engagement. I'm not sure. I really wanted to say Ryanair. I know that's probably the antithesis of Virgin Atlantic, but Ryanair is one of the best examples of a very playful, quirky, interesting, and unique social account to follow. We'll have to hunt down the communications manager at Ryanair, which is probably O'Leary himself, to be honest. Yes. Entertaining is the other thing. So you can follow certain brand accounts if they're going to cut up entertaining things and show it off to you. So that would be the other one. But yeah. And another mention for Disney. Italy's growing. Yeah. No surprise there. Not much that needs to be said about them in terms of the category. But hey, it's always interesting to find the other ones. Maybe Virgin is another good example of world building and ecosystem building around an individual. Yeah, totally. Anything else? No, that was it. And very much enjoyed it. Great to have another Brit on the show. That tally is also increasing slowly. Thank you very much to Greg for his time and insight into business that from the outside has been particularly interesting to follow. Amen. All right, Tom. It's been a pleasure as always. See you next week. See you next week.